Just dream big、uh, is not good enough. You have it's every day, the everyday effort.、Uh, I say everybody can dream big. I can dream. I can cure all the diseases in the world, solve、uh, solve all the poverty problem, the war and the peace issues. But it's the everyday effort, day by day, week by week. Smarts it, it itself is not going to cut it.、Um, you, you, that, that's the everyday effort, every day. Welcome to WCSU four one one, a podcast about interesting people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and today we have an interview recorded on the Midtown campus in the basement of White Hall with Dr. Xu Hua Chi, who allows those of us who don't speak Chinese to simply call him Chi. We're just about on winter break, which means Barbara Viegas will not be with us to talk about campus events at the end of the interview. So let's just go straight to our discussion with Chi, who joins us to talk about his interesting research into how Western literature is presented in his native China. So, Chi, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me、uh, on this、uh, fascinating program. Well, what's going to be fascinating is what you talk about with、uh, your background and your、uh, current projects working on. First, I wanted to、uh, ask you, Chi.、Uh, you grew up, were born and grew up in China. That's isn't that right? Oh yeah,、uh, it was.、Uh, I wouldn't call it fascinating time that I was born, 1957 in China. That's.、Uh, The great leap forward when Mao was trying to get China to catch up with the United States, with the Western world, in ten or fifteen years to launch China into the so-called communist society. That that, that according to Marx will be from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. It turned out to be a disaster, of course, and, and what followed、uh, was、uh, three years of famine. And I still have vivid memories of going to the collective mess hall, very little food, hungry, and I always say, physically, I have a stunted growth. I should be like my son; he's five eleven, five ten. I'm like five, 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 four, a little bit shortish, vertically challenged. That's a result of、uh, those years.、Mm-hmm. So then, of course, fast forward a little bit.、Uh, the ten years of、uh, Cultural Revolution, 1966, 1976. My father was a high school principal, and、uh, he suffered、uh, brutal, humiliating. Uh, struggle sessions with the young regards—you might call it young bullies—misdirected, you know, for whatever revolutionary idealism they they were having. And I I witnessed my father being forced to kneel kneel on broken gra- glass and things like that. So all those were part of my formative years.、Mm. So that's yeah, where I was growing up. Yeah. And none of us,、uh, most I'm sure, most of the people listening to this,、yeah. none of us at Westcon,、uh, working here, or going here to school, have had that kind of experience、yeah. either.、Uh, so, what led you to、uh, become an English scholar? You're a PhD in English,、yeah. uh, and you're the chair of the English department here at Westcon. 
It's a long journey, and、uh, where should I start? One, 1977. One after more than ten years of campuses, universities shut down. Everybody goes out to do revolution, you know, and then,、uh, and and I guess the Chinese leaders decide it's time to have education again. So universities opened, campuses start to accept people. So it was extremely competitive、uh, college entrance exams because you have more than ten years of accumulation of、uh, high school graduates. Many of them were sent down to be re-educated by the by the peasants or factories workers. Now they're all sitting for college entrance exams. So it's about like a three or four out of a hundred that you can get into. You know the, those a few seats. In in the first round of colleges, universities open up to, to、uh, to to have students and education again, and、uh, to major in English was more or less an accidental kind of a development. So accidental English scholar or accidental <laughs> major in English, and you just through the and、uh, um, set through the exams. I I think in in my case the major was given to me rather than my choice. And、then uh, uh, undergraduate studies. I had my master's degree,、um, and, and, and I also had、uh, one semester, nineteen eighty one, in Beijing Fulbright program. At that time, the Fulbright program in China uh, was uh, uh, set actually in Beijing, Beijing University, top number one university in China,、um, through you know Fulbright program exchange program. So at that time, they did not send.、Uh, Whether Fulbright scholars or Fulbright students to to the states to study, rather they host. Uh, I mean, they select all the people from not by national exams, a very highly selective process. So about thirty or forty of us were fortunate enough to be chosen to go to Beijing University to study with four American professors. That my that was my first exposure to. To 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 having classes to American、uh, exposure to American literature,、uh, in fiction, drama, poetry, pop culture,、uh, taught by four professors, and then I、uh, took also very competitive、uh, national exams for graduate studies. One of the first or second batch of、uh, graduate students in China.、Uh, I, I guess that full program sort of prepared me for that exam. It's also. Uh, only three or four, four or five, probably out of a hundred or two hundred, you know,、uh, applicants, uh, 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 you know, got accepted into those few graduate programs, and I,、uh, I did my master's thesis on、uh, a well-known Victorian novelist Thomas Hardy,、uh, tragedy, all、uh, his tragic novels. And、uh, I started to write journal articles, get published. I translated.、Uh, it, Uh, co-translated two of his novels, and then by 1988,、uh, some of the young Chinese Then four and a half years in Illinois, got my doctoral degree, and then taught for seven years in Pennsylvania, 
And then I saw a job ad put by the English department here. I thought almost like that job ad was written for me that I applied. Uh, so I started uh, at Westcon for 2000. So this is like uh, the end of my 17th year. Mm. Yeah, it's been a very, very uh, exciting run and I enjoyed every moment uh, since I came over here. Yeah, that's my, <laughs> I guess, the, 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 my journey that, 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 that took me to Westcon. And uh, I would talk a little bit, of course, uh, the next, uh, you know, about the project and all those things, yes. So it's good that you, I guess, I gather that you enjoyed studying English, even though it was handed to you uh, without your choice. Oh yeah. Uh, when when I started, I I, I remember uh, the night before uh, I went for the interview uh, by the elite schools for these English majors, whatever. I went back to my middle school English teacher, and uh, we had uh, some English lessons, very few, and some alphabet and all that. So I asked her, I still remember that sitting in front of my middle school English teacher, beautiful young woman, I still remember that. And, and she, uh, we went through the alphabet, some of the things together. And so when I went to the interview session with several major university professors sitting there, and they were asking me, they want to speak English to me, of course I couldn't. Or I said I could recite the alphabet for you. And uh, apparently they were happy with my pronunciation, enunciation of the alphabet. And then they tried to make some strange sounds. The, 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 the consonants, the long vowels, the combination of sounds they want me to imitate to see whether I'm sharp enough to... to, to so I, uh, apparently I did uh, okay. They, they accepted me. And once I started at, in college, I realized I was really behind the curve. So many of the classmates in our class, like at, at the college, 130 some students, uh, some of them, their English was so good, they already they can recite long passages in a well-known English textbook. It's called English 900. It's still being used today in China. And so I worked my but off and really on weekends, evenings, uh, even when the, uh, the, 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 they shut the lights in dorms, I use flashlight to cover in my bed to study. And the next morning where everybody was still sleeping in the dorm, I've, you know, I got up and stole out of the dorm, went to the woods, just, uh, it doesn't matter what season and reciting, pronouncing just uh, um, so it paid off the effort by the end of the first semester in the exams I ended up being one of the top three students mm. that's just effort mm -hmm. you know there, there's no way to to get away and so I've stayed there I stayed there in that top three four five students throughout the undergraduate year so that's how uh, after, uh, right at the graduation, the university wanted me to, to be one of the young instructors stay. Mm. And that's why how I had a chance to go to Beijing for Fulbright and later graduate studies. So there is no shortcut, yeah. 
Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> you should tell your students that story. Do you tell them? <laughs> uh, no, sometimes you, uh, you know, I don't want to be an old man in the classroom trying to relive your glory and uh, tell the story sound preachy. So, yeah. but every now and then I do, you know, I want to push that the just dream big uh, is not good enough. You have, it's every day, the everyday effort. Uh, I say everybody can dream big. I can dream I can cure all the diseases in the world, solve, uh, solve all the poverty problems, the war and the peace issues. But it's the everyday effort, day by day, week by week. Smarts it, it itself is not going to cut it. Hmm. Um, you, you, that, that's the everyday effort, every day. Yeah. So let's fast forward to your current project, yeah. which is uh, to bring some of the Western classics to China and stage them there, is that right? Yeah. Well, what, what this, uh, uh, the title of the project is Adapting Western Classics for the Chinese Stage. What happened is, you know, before this, I've done creative writing, short stories, nonfiction, uh, two full-length novels, uh, screenplays. Um, I've done literary translations to novels, so Thomas Hardy's novels. I've translate contemporary Chinese literature, uh, a full anthology of, uh, uh, it's called uh, uh, flash fiction, actually. And I've done some scholarly writings, of course. Uh, uh, in 2012, I published a book called Western Literature in China and the Translation of a Nation that was published by Palgraf Macmillan in 2012. And you know all these major um, academic presses. They are extremely selective. You send your proposal and sample chapters out for external expert reviews, and those people are not going to be nice to you. Mm -mm. They are very uh, demanding. Yeah, and then for, to follow that with another uh, book about the Brande sisters, it's called the Brande Sisters in Other Worlds. Uh, one thing I will need to add is all my research efforts were supported generously by the. Uh, CSU AUP research grants. If I look at my CV, it's almost like every year. Maybe I have skipped only a couple of years that I have got support. And that's why I said I enjoy every moment with the support uh, and some reassigned time. So after um, those two Palgrave Macmillan books, I was thinking about what to do. And I need a project that will sustain me intellectually, engage me for two or three years. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about doing another novel. I got excited. I have a couple of ideas. I have the plot, I have the character sketches. One time I was flying to DC to see my son coming back. I started to scribble excitedly and almost like, you know, in that mode. But when I came back, sitting in my study at home, somehow that excitement was gone. And just, uh, and, and then I, 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 I thought about it. I want to do a sequel to Western literature in China and the translation of a nation. And this idea of Western classics uh, being adapted, performed on the Chinese stage, that got me. And uh, actually, um, now that project has been going on for more than three years now. I'm getting near... I actually just finished all the chapters. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let it sit there while working on a few other smaller journal article-length projects. 
um, I, I'm, I'm going to devote the whole winter break to 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 revising and editing. And that title has been picked up by Rutledge. You know, that's another mm-hmm. major academic press. Uh, I am happy, uh, of course, with the constructive feedback from external reviewers and all that. So, um, so for this. Uh, adapting Western classics for the Chinese stage have to start with uh, that pivotal uh, development in 1907 in Tokyo. So uh, I, I guess if I need to set the stage, I have to set it in the post-Opium War, 1839, uh, 18, yeah, Opium War 1839 to 41. Uh, China used to uh, be lost in its dream of uh, glory, you know, uh, at the tip of uh, the Eurasian landmass, think about uh, itself as the central kingdom, and really a little bit xenophobic and uh, uh, a little bit dismissive of the civilizations of uh, other countries. Very inward looking. Uh, Oh, very inward. They don't need to trade with anyone. They don't need to borrow ideas from anyone until the British came with a gunboat, uh, the Opium War, and uh, the British, of course, uh, uh, used their opiums grown, uh, grown, harvested from India, one of its colonies, of course, shipped them to China and used the trade, uh, the, the, the opiums to trade for China's silk and the silver, whatever. And so that, of course, China lost big time, opened up uh, five big ports, including Shanghai, Fort Trade, Guangzhou, and other major cities. And so, of course, the Western culture, civilization, everything, you know, begin to pour into China. And the Chinese realized they got to learn from the West. So um, and even from the late 1800s, the, even the, the Qing government, you know, the emperors, they start to send some of the best and brightest to go abroad. Some of them actually came to New Haven, the Harvard area, in the 1850s and 60s. Those were among the first batch of uh, students like me coming to the States to study. That's over 100 years ago. Some went to Europe, and uh, many came to this country. Some of them went to Cornell and Columbia doing their PhDs. Most of the graduates went back to China. They become the, the, the really backbone, the, 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 the main force in modernizing China, build the railways and other things, you know, designing architecture, a lot, uh, schools, medicine, modern education, you know, in so many ways. So this group of Chinese students talking about uh, adapting Western classics for the Chinese stage at that time was for the stage in Tokyo. A group of very talented young Chinese students studying in Tokyo, they were taking English lessons, actually, uh, lessons in English literature taught by Japanese English professors because Japan opened up uh, to the Europe, to to the West, uh, about 30 or 40 years prior to China. Uh, modernized uh, much earlier than that. So, um, so these group of students studying with them, Western literature, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, French literature, English literature. So they start because they, these group of students very interested in drama and theater. Some of them had already written plays in traditional Chinese, you know, drama for, format or genre. 
And once they were exposed to Ibsen and other uh, Greek classic Shakespearean plays, and the modern realistic theater, they realized that's what China needed to help modernize, renew its culture. This is the eighteen fifties or so. This, this is already nineteen oh six oh seven. But but that that so groups and groups of students, you know, and, and went to Europe. So this is another group in early twentieth century. Uh, so 2000, no, 1906-07, so they formed a drama society. And this is not just random. They have a manifesto, they have charter, they have mission statement, organizational, what they want to achieve, what place they want to stage. So it's a very thoughtful, methodically. It has conceptual, philosophical, social, political statements. It have artistic, what they want to achieve. So they, um, then the uh, one of the first plays, the major one, is Uncle Tom's Cabin, and they uh, adapt it into a, 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 a realistic theater kind of a play based on a Chinese translation of the novel, and they stage it. Uh, Staged it in Chinese. In, in, in Chinese, yeah. but in Tokyo. Yeah. And it was directed by a famous Japanese direct, uh, actor who was exposed to Western theater too. And that performance was attended by over 2,000 people. It was sensational success, covered by Japanese media, well-received, well-reviewed. And that event in uh, June 1907 is regarded today by most Chinese literature, drama, culture scholars as the birth cry of modern Chinese drama and theater Mm. because they differ significantly from from traditional classic Chinese drama in terms of subject matter, in terms of art, because traditional Chinese theater, you know, they, 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 they have um, most significant uh, 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 hallmark characteristic is the stylized acting. You know, characters have their face painted, good people, bad people, male, female, young and old. They sing in certain melodies. So basically theater, uh, there's not much creativity. You just follow the, uh, the, 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 the classic the examples, whether you can measure up and the subject matter, love stories and all that young scholar going to a national exam, falling in love with a beautiful young woman. I mean, it's more than that, of course, but a lot of it is like that. And the young Chinese students felt those things are not good for China. The, what China needed is something like Ibsen's A Doors House to awaken people about individuality, about dignity, about the uh, pursuit of happiness, and, 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 and about the defiance of uh, social oppressions. And so they borrow Uncle Tom's cabin, you know, that slave story, mm-hmm. and they change it significantly. So, for example, Uncle Tom, the good Uncle Tom, Christian, loving, and uh, take whatever, you know, from the master and all that. They changed him into a fiery uh, freedom fighter and in their story. So the, even the title of uh, that adaptation called Black Slave Cry to Heaven, so it's basically the Chinese students want to uh, appropriate that idea to say this is a Chinese cry for justice, for modernity, for individuality, you know, for freedom, for liberty. Mm. And that's you know, the, the better cry, uh, or rallying cry, if you want, for, for that. that. 
That's in a way. That's what I covered in my first chapter. It's for 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 that, and of course, what followed is all whether Eugene O'Neill, uh, Ibsen, and uh, Shakespeare, and uh, many of the uh, many other Western classics uh, began to be staged in China. It's never a pure artistic pursuit. There's always the social agenda. And I and some of the Chinese scholars today they get a little bit、uh, jaded. They're safe in their twenty-first century armchair. They look back at the earlier generation. They they sort of felt like the early generation. You know that early twentieth century Chinese drama artists. They're a little bit too social, politically involved, and all that. I I have no patience with these young these younger、uh, scholars nowadays. They Sort of dismiss the early generation. I said, those generation of artists that the most talented, most social, politically responsible. They have their conscience that what they did is not for their own artistic achievements, but for the future of a culture and a civilization. Even if, in some aspects, their art may be found a little bit lacking from twenty-first century point of view. I say so be it. I say why don't you do something for the social political causes of China today? Can you do that? You're just so safe where you are now. So in,、uh, I remember in one of my articles I had really some strong words there. On a second thought, I toned it down a little <laughs> bit. So yeah, in 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 that part, it's a big canvas. You know, it's over a hundred years. So how do you structure that? What to focus on? That's it was a, 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 a pretty much as a, a professor teaching writing and、uh, too、uh, quite a bit. Just not just literature, just writing also. I believe in the revision process, the in,、uh, invention process, and the research. Revision itself is rediscovery, rethinking, reformulating. So that that concept of the That 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 book project and how to organize that took quite several revisions, including very demanding external reviews. They had some choice words for me. I took it, you know, to heart and revised. So I arrive at a, a eight or nine chapter、uh, organized scheme. It's、uh, it's it works、uh, at least for now. I think、um, for for adapting Western Western classics, there are、uh, a few things. First.、Um, What do you do? And, and so here is a Shakespeare, and and here is a Eugene O'Neill, or here is Ibsen, or here is Chekhov. So typically, there are four modes of、uh, for adaptation. One is so-called、uh, fidelity mode, faithful. You know, you try to be as faithful to the original as possible in terms of the structure, the story, the character. And that, that, in a way,、uh, there are some success in that. There are some failures in that. One success is、uh, Arthur Miller's、uh, Death of a Salesman in Beijing, and that, of course, uh, 19, uh, that was staged in 1983. Arthur Miller himself was invited to Beijing to direct it himself, even though he didn't speak、uh, one word in Chinese. But somehow,、uh, through a talented Chinese actor. Uh, also, translator of、uh, Death of a Salesman, who's also、uh, 
uh, in a leading position in, in Chinese arts or at least drama and theater. So he, uh, Arthur Miller wake, uh, worked with him in Ruochen, and that's the artist's name. So they, that, that's a very faithful uh, to that, um, production. And, uh, and that was right after Nixon had opened oh, up, yeah. well, so-called so, opened up China. Yeah, Nixon went to China in 1972, yeah. and uh, Jimmy Carter uh, officially uh, uh, well, for uh, the one direct result from Nixon's visit is to establish liaison offices in DC, Washington D.C. and Beijing. Jimmy Carter won one step further. The end of 1971 or early 1980, I think January or February 1980, to officially normalize the relationship between having between the two countries have embassies in in the two capitals. So then, but that actually, uh, Arthur Miller went to Beijing a few months before that normalizing, mm. and uh, so he was quite gutsy, you know, in just as a tourist uh, to look at. And he came back. actually uh, wrote uh, books and articles published in Harper, no, Harper, the Harper magazine, or a few others. Is it uh, New York Times? I forgot which one. Mm. So anyway, so he was invited back. And direct that. That's a very faithful production, even though in Chinese. And it was so good that it, uh, if I watched it for five minutes, the DVD, I forgot which language it is. Mm. It's just the human story, the the the, the human experience. Willie Loman, Linda, hip and uh, happy, the family, their struggle to realize their dreams, the frustration, and the tragic ending. It's just. Uh, I, I can get uh, choked up uh, a few times watching that production. And a, 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 a not suc- successful one would be uh, 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 1950s Chinese uh, uh, adaptation or production of uh, Brexit, uh, uh, the play Mother Courage. Uh, it was 1950s uh, in the poster, just right after the Korean War. I don't know what the, 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 the director is a very gifted uh, director who went to actually uh, Germany to study. He studied, uh, you know, German drama theater right there in Germany and all that. So he even got the videotapes of the original production, tried to emulate that, and did not adapt it to the local culture, the indigenous culture, the, the literary drama taste in the theater. And it was a disaster. It was a failure. And even though it was a huge project undertaking, so then and, and so that's one way of fidelity. And then of course indigenized or naturalize it for the local. And they, they, there are quite a number of successes with uh, whether Shakespeare's King Lear and uh, many other plays. The um, yeah, Eugene O'Neill's uh, uh, desire under the arms and, and things like that, and they 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 they, they, they com- uh, compress characters, so they cut some of the non-essential characters, cut the long di- or compress the long dialogues to make it shorter, and they add uh, traditional Chinese theater singing, dancing. Kung Fu, you gotta have those things to sustain the interest. So they do all those, they even change the themes. 
Um, for example, uh, let's say Eugene O'Neill's Desire Under the Amps. I don't know the audience said how many of us have read that, basically. Um, so there is the old farmer in his 70s, New England farmer. He's uh, three sons, two sons at the beginning of the play, one to California for the gold rush. And the youngest son decided to stay with the father. And at the beginning of the story, the father came back with a young bride, probably his second or third wife. And the love affair developed, or first as a sexual affair, and then love evolved from that sexual encounter between the young stepmother and the, the, the grown-up young stepson, and that theme. And uh, so there was a well-known 1989 adaptation, and uh, uh, so they got designed them, so they actually that... Uh, they adapted into traditional Chinese a huge or theater genre, and they have one female dancer to personify that desire. So at the beginning of the play, just the curtain rises, and that desire character, a beautiful young woman dressed, so uh, her clothing is of a half blue, no half black, half red, almost like the French standout novel. <laughs> so and and she just walked across the stage from left to right, and then um, up to the upstage, downstage, and she sing the theme song. If you have only desire in life, what is life? You know, or if you don't have desire. What is life? Asking some provocative questions. So in that, uh, that um, so there, uh, I mean, she would appear in some pivotal dramatic developments. You know, the moments in the dramatic action. So in the 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 the, the, the one of the climactic moments, one the stepmother, young mother, and the stepson in that sexual encounter, that the. Um, uh, the son could not overcome his promise, his dead mother, and all that. And, and uh, so in this traditional Chinese Shiju uh, adaptation, and the, the, the desire figure come on the scene like from the other world, have a mask, walk the traditional Chinese theater steps, and, and she sang, and not only delivers some words, um, speeches, but also send a big idea denouncing her husband, which is the father, 70-year-old father, uh, husband, how he has worked her to early death, exploited her, the dead, you know, second wife, the young son's mother, and basically pushing them, rallied them, and, 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 and to, to fulfill to, to consummate the sexual encounter. As I was writing on that, I, I basically, when I comment on that thing in my chapter on this, I basically said that it, it gave this sexual encounter a social political justification. And in that sexual consummation, justice is made in that almost like, and I, I thought that's almost like a more explicitly political than what O'Neill had mm -hmm. in his mind in the original dance adaptation. And personally, I have no problem with that. That's, you know, what they want to, they, they saw in the play, they want to do it. And, and, and then in, in another adaptation of the same play, 
uh, that's pretty much followed O'Neill. It, it's also a, a, a 2007 production in Beijing, more faithful. And in that encounter, oh, it was it, it's a realistic theater with some elements of traditional theater. It's a fascinating adaptation. On the theater, you have Chinese actors, used to be very conservative culture. You don't expose sexuality on the stage. But in that production, sexuality in full display and glory, whether, you know, it's, it's there. And uh, it, it's, uh, I, I, it, you know, when, when the son finally, and, and just on top of uh, the stepmother, but he's stripped from waist up, reached out to the ghost of the mother. Ma, what do you want me to do, right? And Ma, and he has tears in his eyes before he succumbed to the desire and consummated that relationship. I don't mean they do that consummation on the stage. I mean a stage mm-hmm. that darkens. But you know what's going to happen next. And it's such a powerful, realistic theater, uh, you know, acting. And that's very different from the stylized. Traditional, it's all beautified dance and singing. But they, they come from different things. The audiences must have been... Oh, engrossed. Yeah. It's just they were so immersed. They just, you know, taken, you know, into that drama mm. because they, the the actors they're credible. They're they're very authentic. They're very the, the young actor who played that uh, young stepson. He was a, such a gifted young actor, and you don't need to have uh, the, the, the 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 pepper or anything spray in his eyes. It's just the tear just well up because he, he channeling that character very very authentically, powerfully. And then you, um, the experimental kind of a mode, uh, I, I guess the example I like to use is uh, Hamlet, uh, 1990, early 1990 uh, production of Shakespeare's Hamlet. That stands out to me um, and in, in a way, it's particularly because of its time, 1990, just uh, Less than a year, a few months after Tiananmen Square, June 1989, students' protest movement. And, and they uh, were crushed there. Crushed tanks, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands died still today, no exact number accounted for. And uh, so, and, and, and I read a number of uh, drama artists. There, there is a talented uh, young artist who adapted. Uh, Samuel Beck is waiting for Godard and other, you know, plays. I read their manifestos written around that time. I could see their artistic manifestos actually embedded in them very uh, clear, explicit political messages. They want to they talk about in this crazy time of insanity, what we artists need to do to protect, to protect and preserve our spiritual home and keep it not to be damaged, destroyed by all the insanity that is going on. There is no, it's, I, I, in my commentary, when I'm working on that chapter, say how explicit you want people to be by saying that, sticking your neck out, even you were talking about art, theater, you're talking about much more than that. So to come back to that the production, um, uh, Hamlet, 
Um, so um, this is by a director. Some of his uh, recent productions I'm not impressed at all. He's getting to the big exhausted at the end of his creativity and political. Uh, so he starts just to flirt with a you know stage production rather than serious. But that 1991, I've got to give it to him. You know, I've got to give it to him. And it's so bold. Uh, conceptually, it's uh, experimental in terms of art theater. And it's gutsy, you know, audacious in its messages. And what happens in the production is, um, I only watched the DVD, of course. I was already in the States. I wasn't there. It's opening night or any of the you know performances. So when the curtain rises, well, in Hamlet, let me go back a little bit. There is the graveyard scene. And there are great two grave diggers, you know, after just they were digging the grave, getting ready for Ophelia's burial. And uh, but what this production did is to use the graveyard as the overarching, not only setting, but also the symbol, the message for the whole play, decade. And that graveyard, when the, the, the curtain rises, there are two grave diggers. Uh, uh, in the center downstage, they were digging, carrying on conversation. Then in the back, there is Claudius, Gertrude, young Hamlet, and Ophelia's brother, Laertes, ready to go back to school, bidding, asking for leave. And, uh, and, 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 and that, uh, the, the, the setting for the court is really because of the frame of the graveyard. It's really like a broken down warehouse in some basement. And it's it's like a Halloween kind of a setting, you know, a broken chair. It's actually, they say it's a broken uh, barber's chair. And uh, and they started to talk. And pretty soon, and, and, and the first time I watched that DVD, I got confused because some of the uh, Hamlet start to say a few lines, and then the actor who 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 is playing Claudius start to say some Hamlet's lines, and then I say, "What is going on?" And, you know, and and so that's where and they eventually uh, and that happens a few times. I realize this is what the the the, the director was experimenting with artistically the, 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 the blurring of the rose. Of course, uh, the, by conventional understanding of the play, you would say Claudius, the usurper, the uncle who murdered his brother, Hamlet's father, and married his sister-in-law, Gertrude. Usurper the throne is a bad person, of course. It's evil. It's the, the, the uh, yeah, uh, evil villain. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. And uh, Hamlet is on the side of the good. Eventually, uh, carry out revenge for on uh, his father's behalf, and also, of course, for Denmark justice and all that, and restore you know um, and, and peace and tranquility, of course. So, and and in that the blurring of lines, characters. It seems to be, it's a little bit blurring of uh, morality, the right and wrong, good and bad. And, and then until it gets to the climactic moment when Hamlet was delivering that famous soliloquy, to be or not to be, that's the question. And what happens on the stage is everybody's, you know, 
just the three of them, the actor who is associated more with Claudius, the actor who associated more with uh, uh, Polonius, uh, Ophelia's father, and the actor, I would uh, associate him more with a Hamlet character, even though there has been some blurring going on. And so the, the actor who was uh, more associated with uh, Hamlet, he starts to deliver the lines. So three of them, one is in center stage, one from left stage, one from right stage. They start to do some formation. They start with a line, to be or not to be. That is the question. And whether it is, uh, you know, um, better to uh, to bear the slings and and, and of uh, you know, I can't recite that soliloquy now, but. Uh, I, I, yeah, so they do that formation and, 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 and walk, deliver the whole actually soliloquy in Chinese, of course, but I know the English lines, even though I can't recite it now. But, you know, they march in formation and, and, and they say, what is going on here? And that line, and, and Claudius, what is his question to be or not to be? What is Pono's question? And that question is supposed to be exclusively Hamlet's question. So, and and then, and and I'm just thinking in the context of post Tiananmen Square, you know, the student protests. And for me, my interpretation, you know, it's my 100% my reading of it. It may not be even being intended by the director or the the the, the, the drama artist. It's in that Tiananmen Square, you know, uh, moment in the, that there are people who what protesting directly in, in the battlefields, you know, the, the, the court, you might say, on the Tiananmen Square, like a football court or whatever you call it, mm-hmm. and fighting for things. There will be people on the sidelines. Uh, uh, I wouldn't call, say, Polonius is the, the busy person. You know, he, he got himself, inserted himself, got it, and that's how he was killed by Hamlet. Um, and that there is Polonius. So... I, I, in my comment on that, I, I was just second guessing, and my reading of it. So the Claudius, if Claudius is a standing for the Chinese leadership, who, 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 who issued the order to crack down, was it a to be or not to be existential moment for them? Because. I honestly, I want to give them that benefit of doubt that the leadership, Deng Xiaoping, the leader who actually opened up China for reform and what is going on in China today is very much the credit of Deng Xiaoping who decided to, to abandon you know, the old strict communist ideology to open up China today. And I don't think he was a bloodthirsty person just want to kill the young students and all that. And he saw in that moment what was going on in Beijing as a national existential crisis. And for him, that he was ready to sacrifice the young students for what he thought was the common logic good of the society. I'm not condoning, you know, saying that's good, but that was uh, an existential crisis moment, and there was the Hamlet. And I just say, if that's he's a standing for the students in the sense of fighting for that, and there will be a lot of spectators who are half-heartedly involved or not really involved. 
I, 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 and it's almost a moment it just hit on me. That's the interpretation, whether intended or not. And uh, uh, that's an English major scholar where mm-hmm. it comes in, you know, you interpret right. it. But that's why you go into uh, oh, something yeah. like this. Oh, you yeah. study this because of yeah. the fascination of uh, yeah. how art can change yeah. the world, really. And that's examples yeah. of it. And in, an, an, another part of it is the, the, the graveyard setting and... Uh, and the two dialogues also, I, I read another big message into that is also because the the young Chinese idealistic intellectuals, artists, students got so crushed by that crackdown in, in, uh, on Tiananmen Square 1989 that many of them diverted their energy attention to other worldly pursuits. And I could hear in that two diggers dialogue, in, in one of the dialogues, it was so big, I heard it loud and clear. Is uh, one of the, 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 the graveyard digger, gra- diggers and said, now in this age, you know, some young intellectuals got too busy, got involved to see what happens, they got into trouble, they die and we're digging graves for them. You know what? You know, you, uh, to, you shouldn't mind the business of heaven, don't mind the business of earth, just mind your own personal business. That's what I do. And if when I eat, my whole family is not hungry. That's all that matters. So again, when I worked on that chapter, as I said, that message was heard around the country loud and clear. And even though a lot of people in the West, uh, some people have commented on many actually, that there, ha- there haven't been a lot of many um, political movements in China. There are some political activists, you know, whether in China they sometimes get jailed, and some of them are still raising some, raising some, you know, uh, complaints, protests in states in other countries. But by and large, I would say more than 95, maybe even 99% of Chinese, almost all the people I know in China, in universities, intellectuals, professors. And, you know, when you're at the dinner table, you talk, maybe they have some concerns about that. But their energy is basically, it's devoted, dedicated to practical issues, career, getting another essay published, or getting promotion, and to buy, you know, to send kids to good schools, earn more money, and investments, stock markets, and basically these things and uh, that's that production you know 1990 I could see that play that adaptation of Shakespeare's Hamlet as kind of a a, a point that um, that what what is said by that those two gravediggers pretty much what is on the mind of uh, a lot of Chinese people yeah so that's drama, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's why I believe in drama. I don't mean, uh, I don't believe in uh, doing literature or drama just pure for the propaganda or, you know, manipulative and whatever, but I, uh, purpose, but I believe in drama and the theater have a place in the social, cultural, political life of the society. It's not pure art for art's sake. Even though if some people want to pursue that, that's fine. But even in that art for arts pursuit itself is a political statement in itself. It awakens people, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there will be some 
hybridized the fourth way、mm. to come back, circle back to you know the the four ways of adapting. So they will have a, a realistic theater, but they will interject some traditional theater in it, and some of the especially more experimental avant-garde theater, small theater movement in China. I've seen quite some you know small theater productions of plays. Uh, it's, it's quite amazing, but they sometimes it's more for commercial entertainment. Maybe there are some you know serious messages there,、uh, but it's more entertainment. But of course, you can't expect all theater events are for social political entertainment. We all need it. We all at the end of the week maybe go to a place, just lighten up, have a good laugh, and it's a, a cathartic. And to release some stress, yes, yeah. And the ones that are、uh, making political statements, they still have to be worried, right, about、um, being、um, shut down by the government. Yeah, if、that's, the government pays attention to. Oh yeah, that that's part of it. Like say the same director who directed that experimental Hamlet. So 2016, I went to Beijing. I see. Uh, 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 he's、uh, he, he's in his 80s now. And you know, I saw him in the back of the theater. <laughs> Some of it,、uh, I, I, it was his adaptation of、uh, Ibsen's "An Enemy of the People." That's a very serious play. In that play, the main character, a doctor Stockman, who is in a small town doctor, his brother Peter is the mayor, and they were、uh, they were trying to develop the town into some tourist. Spot to resort to revive the economy, you know, bring attract tourists in. So the doctor Stockman, in his study of the water, you know, supplies resources in town, found actually it has some problem. It's contaminated with some kind of bacteria that can be harmful to people. So whether to release that public publish or release that that report or not, that there is a Uh, moral dilemma, and he wanted to follow his conscience. Want to publicize the, that that study report? His brother came to his uh, uh, to his home to pressure him not to hold back on that, not to, for the good of the whole town. And then they ended up having a big debate, a meeting actually in town. The townspeople were so angry at the doctor that he became the enemy of the people. Denounce him, selfish, and all that stuff, and and the doctor and in that meeting gave a big speech about the people being petty, selfish, and all that denouncement. It's a very very serious play about environmental protection, about conscience, morality, a lot of issues. So, and this doctor Stockman character has been held up as a hero、uh, since early twentieth century in Chinese arts and literature.、Uh, As someone who is willing to stand up for truth, even at the risk of being excommunicated by the whole town, abandoned by the whole town by his brother and everyone, stand up for truth. That's the guts. That's the courage. So for this 2016 production, and what the director did is trying to make that original Ibsen play to be a play within the play. So to frame it with a rehearsal play, like、uh, some Chinese actors trying to rehearse this Ibsen play, 
And that rehearsal is in a kind of a melodramatic or I would call farcical kind of a mode. And so the character who plays Dr. Stockman, he is also the director of the production for the rehearsal. And so he's all sort of like, you know, put his hats on or off and all that. There's some kind of overacting, underacting, correcting and all that. And I was so upset sitting there. I said, what are you guys doing? If you want to have fun, have entertainment, choose another play. There are hundreds of plays to choose from. But this is a serious play, serious message that China, the society, needs. The, uh, not only in terms of the environmental protection, the, you know, the, the, the pollution and all that, but also the moral pollution to stand up for truth and all that. And, uh, and uh, so there are some other messages. There is also some comments delivered. That's, that's Ibsen's problem, the lines, uh, because he got a little bit of Superman mentality. He denounced the common folks, like they're really lousy, uneducated. So I, uh, some of the lines may be added by the director or whatever, really elevate, um, let's say, the, the, the German shepherd as pure stock, or American turkey as real grand, and the, the, the local native Chinese hands and whatever. I was ready to scream there. I said, such racial slurs you guys are talking about. I couldn't contain myself sitting there. I said, everybody was sitting there like, are you going to take this from the stage? You know, I, I almost really poor. I, you know how I speak. I speak my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so in that, I just felt that the, the original Ibsen's play, that serious social political message was so lost, diluted. And that... Uh, meta theater event. There is a frame of uh, you know rehearsing, like uh, showing the audience what it takes to produce or whatever. I just feel this is not the play, and it's so messed up. And even during intercession, when the, the Chinese national televisions were interviewing people, there are other people saying it's great. I'm enjoying it. I just couldn't help it. I said I just insert myself in front of the. Mike, I said, this is a very bad production. It just ruined the serious message of what the play. I'm, I'm, I'm not all for just slavishly faithful to the original, but this is a serious play. I don't know whether they, they edited that out or whatever. <laughs> I just need to say what I need to say. And, um, and, 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 but then I, I want to back off a little bit, maybe I'm a little bit too harsh to the director. Maybe just Paul, as you said, and sometimes artists may be held accountable in different ways mm. uh, if you have two explicit political messages. Maybe the actor is still trying to embed camouflage, serious messages. Maybe even one Dr. Stackman character, you know, delivering that serious speech. That's all what the drama artists, director want to get across. The rest of it, the laughs, whatever. It's all the price you pay for getting that message across out. I don't know um, whether that's in his intention. I didn't get to interview him. I, I, I Personality-wise, I don't like to chase after big stars, like I ask him, what do you think? 
because I know what I think. Mm-hmm. I don't need to. Sorry. So it's poor, you know that as again. So I I, I didn't you know interview him. Hmm. Yeah. You have your book coming out in later next year, right? Yeah, in 2018. Yeah, yeah. So the deadline is to uh, uh, to deliver the complete manuscript at the end of March. Originally, it was the end of this uh, semester, December. Hmm. I asked them for three months extension because I'm being chair and other things. Yeah. I don't, and, and you know, I can't have as much whole chunks of time. I, you know, try to seize every moment. I, uh, for example, um, for 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 uh, a few. This semester, much of this uh, this semester, uh, I typically uh, arrive in my office sometimes five thirty, sometimes six. Before I get to work, I I work on uh, writing or whatever for about two hours. It's uh, like the old days. Oh yeah, when yeah. you were studying for your uh, yeah, test. you, you got to do it. You got to do it, and there is no get around get get around it. Just so, uh, and then um, weekends, evenings. So and you try to juggle, and you got to do a, as good a job as chair as a professor in the classroom. There's also the scholar part. You know you got to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just had a talk about Ibsen. You know, my uh, uh, I, I had a uh, paper uh, journal uh, paper published uh, earlier this year. Uh, actually, the end of last year early, came out this 2017 comparative drama. That's about a doll's house in his modern bilingual production. That's what I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And this new paper came out. Um, it's about uh, Enemy of the People, Ghosts, Master Builder. The, the, the actually, the, the Chinese drama artists have uh, adapted and staged most of Ibsen's major plays. So I want to give a critical overview and account and critique of the adaptations of these, including some of it, what I've said here about you know, this director's anime of the people, actually, I included that in that. It, it's a, it's going to come out, um, I just did proofreading, so it will come out in a week or two, early December. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, Chi, thanks for sharing this with us. fascinating. I had no idea that all this was going on in China and this kind of cultural um, development. It's, uh, I want to le- learn more about it. Yeah. It's just fascinating. Well, you come with me next time. I'll okay. take you to Beijing, Shanghai. Those two big cities, the uh, cosmopolitan, and you go, you walk into the theater, you see the young college students, graduate students. Usually I'm one of the older ones, one of the few gray haired. Uh, what, what is he doing here? But mostly the young 20, 30 year olds. And they are enthusiasts. They are, they are drama theater enthusiasts. Next time, try come with me. Yeah, I will. Thank <laughs> I'll you. be your personal guide. Okay. I would love that. <laughs> thank you, Chi. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about something I feel passionate about, and I feel um, it's it's part of someone like me, uh, a Chinese now Chinese American, uh, and at a unique place to connect. Uh, the East and West in, in in the intellectual, academic, and cultural kind of ways. At the yeah. right time in oh, history, yeah. too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I always thank our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who decided we should have podcasts at Westcon. They set up the equipment and recruited the interviewers, and now we have the best podcasts in Connecticut. 
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe at WCSU Media on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher so you can stay up to date with all editions of WCSU 411. After you subscribe, leave a comment there or on Twitter at WCSU 411. Until next week, this is Paul Steinmetz. Hey, Paul. Mm. Oh, yeah. Hey, Paul, it's Scott. Oh, no signing off yet. Yes, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, Paul, did you think about telling everybody about giving the gift of podcasts this season, this holiday season? You mean a special uh, gift just for our listeners? No, no. I mean that our listeners should give the gift of podcasts to all of their family and friends this holiday season. I had not thought about that, but I leave it up to our executive producer to come up with these good ideas, which, and it is a great idea. I love that. You know, we could even have, they could call it the podcast of the month club. Mm Mm-hmm. All they need to do is click on that little subscribe button for all their family and friends, and every week they'll get all the WCSU media podcasts. And then it becomes kind of a gift to me, too, right? Because more people listen to the podcasts, and I get uh, more stature here on campus. It's true. It's very true. Because three people know there's a podcast on campus, and all three of them will be impressed. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Hey, Paul. Yes. I heard that there's a a buy one, get one free uh, offer this holiday season for the WCSU uh, media podcast. You buy one edition of WCSU 411, you subscribe, and then for the first 10 people who sign up, we're going to send our executive producer, Scott Volpe, to your house. He'll bring donuts, and he'll record your answering machine uh, outgoing message for you. That sounds great. Yeah, I think we're really going to be hot. If 10 immediately sign up, we'll do another 10. (laughs) Paul, don't we want people to sign up for the podcast? Yeah, didn't I say that? Why would we send Scott to their house then? (laughs) I see, you're digging Scott. (laughs) That was not nice. No, he's frowning now, Pete. He's always frowning. Oh, that's true. Frowny emoji. (laughs) Sad face. Sad face. The human sad face. (laughs) <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks. We good, Pete? God, I hope so. <laughs> All right.